This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. The University of Colorado will play its first bowl game in nine years tonight against Oklahoma State in the Alamo Bowl. But the excitement of the game and a season that saw the Buffs climb into the nation's top ten is tempered by the death of former star running back Rashan Salam, the 1994 Heisman Trophy winner. Salam killed himself December 5th. One of Salam's teammates and friends joins us, T.J. Cunningham. Welcome to the program. Uh, thanks for having me here. Nate. It has been a great season it's for great season. the Buffs on the field, but this game must be bittersweet. Uh, it is bittersweet. Um, we are, uh, I think, the whole, whole Buff Nation is excited about the hard work that was put in uh, that these young men and the coaches have put in up in Boulder. Uh, obviously, that's how they were able to... Uh, you know, achieve their achievements this year and make it to the bowl down in Texas. And we're all, you know, we are all as a Buff Nation really proud of these guys. Um, obviously, the bitter part is, uh, you know, we're going into this bowl game uh, w- without one of our teammates, if mm-hmm. you will, uh, someone from the family. So that that's, you know, that's the bitter part. But I'm sure um, those guys in Texas and Buff Nation, uh, we're going to, you know, we'll pull together. We'll use the love and the support that we have for Rashawn and we'll, and I will be cheering for our team tonight. Rashawn was the 1994 Heisman Trophy winner, um, and he had a, a really good season when he won that that Heisman Trophy, in which he rushed for over 2,000 yards and was a first-team All-American. And uh, here's a clip of this exciting moment in his life. Here is the give to Salam. Salam to the outside. He's down to the 50. The team is adding a decal to the back of the players' helmets for tonight's bowl game to commemorate him. What did he mean to CU football? I uh, tell you what, uh, he was our only Heisman Trophy winner. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it'll mean a lot to every generation and uh, generations that played before uh, of Buff Nation. Uh, just you know, it was a tribute again to uh, our tradition and uh, how hard we were working and how hard we played uh, during those years. Uh, there were some. Some some serious teams that were put on the field by Coach McCartney and his staff. So, Rashawn means a lot to us. Um, you know, just what a tremendous player. Uh, his um, again, my favorite play of his is the block he threw for Cordell Stewart, which uh, freed Cordell up to throw the miracle in Michigan. Uh, I, I really like that play because that, you know, that reminds me of who Rashawn was on and off the field. So, if those guys tonight are playing with that type of passion. Um, with that type of fiery uh, competitiveness that Rashawn had, uh, I'll, I'll be I'll be excited about the outcome. And Coloradans saw him on the field, but you saw him off the field. I did. Um, tell me about him off the field. He had a huge heart. Uh, such a giving, giving person. You know, Rashawn wanted to be the person to uh, to be the supporter, if you will. Uh, there are often times where you have to, you know, tell Rashawn, hey, look, I can, I can handle this one on my own. <laughs> but he still wanted to be there and support in uh, any, any kind of way. He and I uh, were really, really close like that. Uh, we support each other on all sorts of levels. Um, you know, he, he had, a, he had a, a laugh and a smile that just brought up the room. And he um, was magnetic, his personality. He was bright. He was clean, brilliant young man. And he was also really close to your family, right? He was very close to my family, very close to my family. And why was that? Um, well, I, you know, I guess he and I had uh, had developed a, a good relationship. Mm-hmm. Um, my first daughter was born in 1996, and so you know, Rashawn, you know, took her on as 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 uncle, mm-hmm. and, and uh, you know, Rashawn 
and my little girl actually were at my graduation in 1999. And uh, so all the rest of my little girls came out. He was just Uncle Rashawn. I believe Rashawn loved those kids because he didn't have to be, you know, uh, the Heisman Trophy winning Rashawn Salam. He could just be Uncle Rashawn. Mm-hmm. And so that he felt comfortable with those kids and he felt, he felt comfortable with my family. And uh, we had a good time. Now, you're a dean of students at Hinckley High School I in am. Aurora. I am. How did you hear about uh, his passing? Above. Excuse me? How did you hear about his passing? Was it during school hours and, and things like that? It was during school hours. Uh, I received a phone call uh, from a former teammate, Hannibal Navies, who informed me of uh, you know, our, un, uh, our unfortunate loss. Mm. And uh, I was devastated. I was devastated. It was, uh, it was like lo- losing a brother. And, um, you know... It hurt. It was, it, you know, it was in disbelief. Obviously, I've got to move on. I do have a family, uh, but uh, mornings are mornings. Sometimes I struggle. I still think are, about my buddy. Mornings are a struggle. Uh, you know, you just think about your buddy. He's not here today. Now, you've leaned on your family. I'm assuming for during this. Time. Absolutely, um, man. Some 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 great conversations he and I had over the years, and just how you know, through his passing, I, I look at my family and and the support they've given me. Uh, all of them, and uh, we have, you know, we had a wonderful holiday uh, under the circumstance, and uh, that's without them, I don't know. This would have been a very tough moment, very very tough. How do you talk to your daughters about this? I let them know <clears throat> that he loved them. Uh, it was hard to tell the fifth grader. It was hard to tell my oldest one. Um, you know, they were. They seen him as uncle, as an uncle Rashawn, mm-hmm. uh, literally as my brother. They even told me, you know, he was your brother, and you know, they cried, and you just, mm-hmm. you know, I just let them know that he was, you know, he loved them, and uh, and just remember all the good times we had. After he won the Heisman his junior year, he left CU and turned pro. Mm-hmm. Uh, what impact do you think that may have had on his life? Well, you know, hey, to be a, a first rounder and a Heisman Trophy winner, you know, that was it was a blessing. Rashawn was he was excited. He had a, he had a tremendous, tremendous rookie year. Did he um, talk often about his pro career? Uh, we 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 didn't often talk about his pro career, but uh, again, I think there are a lot of players, and I'll include Rashawn. And this is important for me to say, but I think there are a lot of players that look uh, back on their careers and often say what they should have done or what they could have done or if they would have done this or that. And they uh, often forget to forget about, you know, they fail to realize what they have done and, and really embrace that. And that comes that comes along with the transition when you see yourself uh, in a helmet and shoulder pads and pants and knees and all the rest of it going to the ground, it's over. Mm-hmm. So you see yourself it goes away. So there's a transition you have to go through and Oftentimes, you have to focus on the positive of what you've done. You know, we achieved, you know, everybody on that Colorado football team through the 90s, you know, that I played with, boy, what a talented, talented group. Uh, We've got some really successful guys. We've lost some people to similar um, incidents such as Rashawn, but we are a talented group, you know. We'll always be talked about in Colorado. You always see the miracle in Michigan. That that, that time of, yeah. You always see him making that block. Do you think that he didn't appreciate his career, pro career? I think, um, you know, Rashawn achieved the Heisman. 
Mm-hmm. I, I believe there are a lot of Heisman. I, you know, I didn't. I, I didn't win the Heisman. You know, I can speak for myself. I tell you what, uh, I was pretty highly recruited coming out of high school, but did I ever score twenty five touchdowns again in a season? No. That was, you know, that's. You, you, sometimes you can struggle with that. So I have to take on the successes that I did, maybe as a DB in Colorado. Mm-hmm. Rashawn won not Heisman. You move on. He never, you know, he never quite achieved that that level. Uh, he was an impressive rookie, yes, and he did get injured. But I think really uh, something that triggered was a, an interview he gave. Hmm. <clears throat> and in that interview, if you listen to the interview, you can hear you know things that were happening inside of Rashawn. And he spoke of uh, marijuana, some other things he was doing, not going out and hanging out with people. Mm-hmm. Uh, obviously, I think the marijuana was just a coping skill. It was something deeper going on with Rashawn. But after that interview, I, I believe he vilified himself. I think he felt like the media had vilified that he was a, you know, some pothead smoking yeah, a marijuana, yeah, user, right. some some rebel, and he absolutely was not. Very very br- brilliant young man, uh, sitting down and having long one on one conversations. You know, he left a lot of people impressed. Um, he just, you know, the, he obviously had struggles, and so yeah, that, that that was that was tough for him. So I think once that happened, it was hard for him to see his successes. It was hard for him to see that. Um, I'll say that. But um, he knew inside that he was still a special person. Okay? He knew that it took a special person to do what he did. And that, uh, you know, he was he knew he was a special person. So there was a, you know. There he, was a pull there. There was there a was pull. A, a, there was a, a back conflict. and forth. There was back and forth. And I can only imagine, you know, things that he didn't speak to me about were going through his head. I can only imagine. You're listening to Colorado Matters. From CPR News, I'm Nathan Heffel, and we're joined by T.J. Cunningham, a former University of Colorado football player and teammate of Heisman Trophy-winning running back Rashawn Salam, who died early this month uh, by suicide. You spoke to him last spring, right? And, and, and you had these conversations. Was there any idea that, that something was coming in that sense? You know, he and I... Spoke. He had um, projects that he was ex- excited about doing. Uh, he was, you know, pursuing some projects, and he, uh, at that time, he was he was going to do groundwork. Uh, as his brother, I was really proud to hear that he actually wanted to do the groundwork and the, you know, be hands on and building, you know, whatever project, whatever successes he was going to do. Is something I really encouraged him to do. So that seemed to me like he had a focus and he was dialed in. Um, you know, looking back on it, you know, did he put all, all everything he had into it? Because uh, you know, he and I, as I went in, you know, back into education, mm-hmm. you know, he and I, you know, I'm a busy, I'm busy, so we weren't in touch as much. As much, okay. But um, I can only imagine if that didn't work out for him, what that may have felt like. Now, there's not been an, an official examination, uh, but his brother has said he thought Rashawn suffered from the brain disease CTE. Uh, what are your thoughts on that? <clears throat> in Rashawn's case, I think what we're looking at is a cocktail of sorts. Um, his insecurities, uh, his depression, you know, his achievements, his non-achievements tied in with CT. So I think you're looking at a, a cocktail of sorts. Um, I'm not a doctor, um, but you know, the symptoms that we read about, a lot of us share those. 
does that worry you that you may sometimes experience those symptoms and question if that's happening to you? Well, you know, I'm going to take it on as the inevitable. I, I think I have to. To be realistic, there there was a there was a time uh, at Colorado. I was a freshman. I it was in the spring ball. I tried to cross a goal line. It was tapped on the front of my shoulder. Ran backwards. Hit a wall. First time practice was ever shut down. Mm. Uh, you know, and so do I concern myself about the hey, the concussions? Uh, of course. Are there times where you know me and Rashawn would talk about it? You wake up in the morning, forget where you put your keys. You know, you you do these little things, and you know a lot of people do them. So, but you know, to us, it's okay. Is this going to be uh, a slow approaching train, or is it something that's going to hit all of a sudden? What's so? What I do myself, and I encourage others to do. I try to help people. So, as, you know, as a dean, I, you know, I use positive behavioral supports. We use restorative justice. I'm collaborative with teachers. Try to help them with engagement with students in the classroom. I do what I can. I try to leave good works. And so, did Rashawn have CTE? Um, you know, they'd have to, you know, they have to do some things that are be beyond well, my scope. Well, is it, is it important for you to have that definitive answer? Is it important for me to have the answer? N not necessarily. Mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> look, Ted Johnson was another teammate of ours at the University of Colorado. We came in in 91. Rashawn came in in 92. Um, honestly, I believe it was Ted Johnson who, whose, uh, whose voice was the initial loud voice about concussions and what was, what was happening to him and some other things. Um, I look back at all, of those, all those guys who were my age at that time and those who are older. We've been playing football in, in my particular era since the 70s. Uh, I had a Kelly helmet, gave me a headache putting it on, all right? <laughs> so I just think about, you know, we did get bigger, faster. The game got bigger, faster as it went along. Um, and then the, pro, you know, the concussion protocol came in the mid-'90s, a little bit later, I believe, yeah. uh, of, of the, in the 90s. And so... Um, you think about it, it seems. Yeah, of but, course. You, you, but that's... you got to be smart. And yeah. it's just like coaching a football game. you got to take on every aspect of, you know, what, what could happen. you got to get all, all options. And hopefully you can protect your family and leave good works. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. T.J. Cunningham is a dean of students at Hinckley High School in Aurora and a teammate of former Heisman Trophy winner Rashawn Salam at the University of Colorado. With CU playing tonight in the Alamo Bowl, he spoke to us about his memories of Salam, who died December 5th. Coming up, how a sheep herder on Colorado's western slope gained fame as an artist. You're listening to Colorado Matters from CPR News. You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. His carvings in aspen trees and rocks earned him praise as a master folk artist. Although for the late Pacomio Martinez Chacon, art was just a way to pass the time, as he herded sheep on Colorado's western slope and in Utah. His art and life are captured in a book that came out earlier this year. The author is Stephen Baker of Montrose. He's a historical archaeologist and was a close friend of Chacon. Steve, welcome. Thank you. Pleasure. The book is called My Name is Pacomio, The Life and Works of Colorado's Sheep Herder and Master Artist of Nature's Canvas. Uh, Chacon, or Paco, uh, as those close to him called him, died in 2009 at the age of 93. Uh, I understand you first saw his artwork on aspen trees in the 1970s and were struck by the carvings. Can you describe them and explain why you found them so compelling? Well, they were 
over on Lone Cone Peak in western Montrose County. And his handwriting in the trees was exquisite, far, far better than your average sheep herder would do. And some of the images, uh, they just stood out. And then I forgot about them for the next 30 years or so. <laughs> <laughs> and you came across his artwork again in the late 80s. And shortly after that, you decided you had to meet him, right? That's correct. So tell me That's why correct. you had to meet him. What was it about him or his work as, you know, he probably wouldn't call it work, but, but you know, why would you want to meet him? Well, I was writing reports for an energy company up at Rangeley, hmm. and their uh, area of study uh, for exploration uh, happened to be the winter sheep grounds of Mike Theus of uh, Meeker, and Paco herded for Theus. So in the summer winter time in the sheep uh, winter grounds, Paco would carve in the rocks. Then in the summer, in the high country, he would carve in the aspen. And I'd never seen his work in the in the rock. And it was absolutely outstanding. I'm not an art critic, but I could tell this was this was not normal stuff. And the BLM, of course, told me that I would need to record it, so I did. And uh, in order to flesh out the reports, I needed to meet Paco. So I looked him up. And you found him, and you met him, and what was he like? Paco was a, a generally quiet man, unless maybe he'd had a dram or two. Uh, very, very sensitive uh, to his surroundings, very observant. And he loved to uh, 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 not tell jokes, but to imitate. He, he was uh, uh, the same kind of things he conveyed in his carvings, chimerical qualities. Uh, if he was imitating a former boss, it was, it was hilarious. But he, he had some drawbacks. He liked to drink a little too much. And, but he was a good herder, and he was just a, turned out to be a real good friend. We got along very, very well. So how did he get into sheep herding? Well, it was all he really knew. When he was a little boy, he only got a third grade education, I believe it was. And he had to go off and herd sheep. It was depression years. And, and growing up in La Mesa, New Mexico... Uh, down the Hamas Mountains, they didn't have much. And so all the kids had to go help dad and uncles and everybody herd sheep to bring in hard cash. And that's how he got started. He started over at Monticello, Utah, and then ultimately got into to fruit of Colorado. He served in World War II, and when the war came out, he was uh, ultimately found that the only real skill he had uh, that was in demand was herding sheep. He was also a very small man, uh, maybe five feet tall, and mm. could not lift some of the heavy loads uh, attributed to uh, are necessary in, in packing and, and the old-time sheep camps. So he essentially went into the, you know, stayed with herding. How he stayed with herding. He didn't have, he had a family, and growing family, I should add, and he needed, uh, needed to make a living. And he, at one point, learned to hate the sheep. When he was a young man, wanted to get away from him and ran away to California. And then he ultimately came back and he learned to, to love the sheep almost with a religious uh, sensitivity. He, when he would talk about the sheep, uh, he would get a little misty sometimes. Well, how then did he discover that he had this artistic talent? He had it, I think it's in the somewhere in the family genetics. When he was a little boy... Uh, helping as just a helper over in Utah, one of his uncles said to him, you need to learn to write your name beautifully 
so people won't think you're just a, uh, an uneducated sheep herder. So Pockle began practicing with a tablet and stubby pencil by candlelight in a sheep herder's tent over in Utah. His handwriting got to be so uh, famous and so well done that he did all the uh, uh, enrollment uh, figures for the Army when he was uh, in the army, people would give him candy and cigarettes to address the letters to his girlfriends or their girlfriends, and he would gussy up the envelopes with uh, birds or flowers. He just had a compulsive tendency to, if it was there, he'd carve on it or write on it, uh, back of an envelope, whatever it might be. He couldn't pass it up. You're with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm speaking with Stephen Baker. He's a Montrose historical archaeologist and the author of the book, My Name is Pacomio, The Life and Works of Colorado's Sheep Herder and Master Artist of Nature's Canvases. I had no idea that there was a long tradition of sheep herder art that exists far beyond Paco's work. But in your book, you write that it's a dying form. Why is that? Well, I think it's probably dying for a number of reasons. First off, sheep herding has changed. It's, it's been diminished a lot. You don't have near the herders out now that you once did. There used to be herds everywhere. Secondly, uh, Americans don't take those jobs. Uh, they're bringing in uh, t- people from Tibet and South America, and I honestly don't know uh, if they really carve. Uh, the difference is that Paco's actually did artwork as opposed to leaving cryptic messages or cryptic little uh, designs on trees. Uh, Tree art, for instance, can convey messages, warnings, there's quicksand ahead, or, you know, there's something out there, or here's the, the way to go to such and such. But Paco took time to actually do artwork as he knew it untrained, you know, he had a problem with perspective, but he tried uh, uh, watercolors, everything under the sun. And he made a lot of, uh, as you call them, pinup style nudes, probably hundreds of them. Did he ever tell you why he carved so many nude women into aspen trees and rocks? Yes. Uh, First off, he admitted that he loved women. He just, he really admired them and loved them. And then he had plenty of time and all the herders had some way to pass the time, some kind of whimsy. Uh, they would carve or stack up rocks, look for arrowheads, read or whatever. Paco chose to carve. And one of the things he wanted to do was leave something behind that people would discover by accident and make them laugh and smile. And so that became his hallmark, were, were nude girls, calendar girls. Not never pornographic stuff, just unclothed women in beautiful activities like toweling off after a shower or gazing into a pool of water on a mountain brook. Uh, just And every one of them, he even drew or carved a Marilyn Monroe that people look at and say, that's Marilyn Monroe. He captured her facial features. Uh, he, he was just a master. And he knew how the trees would react. He he understood that. So to answer your question, it was it was his calling card. And that's how I stress it in the book, his hallmark. And people who were in the outdoors in the far distant ranges knew Paco had been there. And that's what Paco was all about. My name is Pacomio, and I'm not just a sheep herder. I can carve. And he was very proud of that and the admiration that people gave him. He had a unique way of carving that uh, you say is different from other sheep herders. 
and he says he knew how the trees would react to his artwork. Can can you talk about that real quick? Sure. Uh, Paco understood that uh, most people, when they carve on an aspen tree, they want to have immediate gratification. They want to see the carving. They want to see their name. Paco understood that the tree was sensitive and alive, and so he would take an, a pencil and car, uh, 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 block it out, then the finest point of his knife he would use to just cut barely into the green underlying tissue. Then it would take two to three years for that to begin to scar and the image to, to, to show. And so it would take a considerable understanding of how the tree would react. And then after some years, it would scar over, and so the carvings blossom uh, only temporarily. Then they, then they go away. Couldn't these carvings be considered vandalism in national parks and on public lands? Uh, the Forest Service apparently didn't because they joined with the Museum of Western Colorado and the Colorado Council for the Arts in 1992, named him a master folk artist. Uh, he didn't deface things. He, he never carved over Native American rock art or anything like that. And the trees are ephemeral. They're going to die anyway. A lot of them were cut out for timber sales. So the Forest Service and the BLM did not consider it to be vandalism, uh, to my best understanding. Thanks for joining us. My pleasure. Thank you. Historical archaeologist Stephen Baker of Montrose, his book is My Name is Pacomio, The Life and Work of Colorado's Sheep Herder and Master Art of Nature's Canvases. You can find photos of this artist's aspen and cliff carvings at cprnews.org. Still to come, a wounded warrior who's healing through the sport of shot put. It's one of our favorite interviews of 2016. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. Nothing seems to faze Master Sergeant Israel D.T. Del Toro, Jr. He was severely burned in an explosion in Afghanistan. The Colorado Springs Airman is now a gold medal shot putter and the first fully disabled airman to re-enlist in the Air Force. This week, we're listening back to some of our favorite conversations from the past year. CPR's Andrew Dukakis sat down with D.T. in May as he waited to see if he'd made the 2016 U.S. Paralympic team. D.T., welcome. Hi, thank you for having me here. You've served in the Air Force around the world from Bosnia to South Korea. A roadside bomb exploded under your Humvee during your second tour in Afghanistan. That was in 2005. Explain what happened. Uh, Well, we're on a mission. Uh, We had orders that there was a high-value target out in the area. So we had to either uh, capture or kill him. So we're out there a couple days, and the day I got hurt, we were on our way to pick up the other half of our team. And that's when we, we crossed this creek. And 200 meters after we cross this creek, I feel this intense heat blast on the left side. And I realize, like, holy crap, we just got hit. Uh, so, you know, people talk about how your life flashes in front of you. And you know, I never believed that. But when I got hit, everything slowed down. And I just started thinking of my family, you know. Me and my wife are finally going to get married by the church. You know, we we're going to go to Greece for a honeymoon and teach my boy how to play baseball. Then something clicked and I got out of the truck. But when I got out of the truck, I was on fire from head to toe. Mm. And But I I realized that creek was behind me, so I tried to run to it. But the flames overtook me, and I collapsed. And I and I lay there thinking that I was going to die there, that I had broken my promise, that I will always come back, you know, that, that I would not let my son grow up without his dad. And that's when uh, one of my teammates holds me up, and we both jumped into the creek to extinguish the flames. Mm. Uh, 
you know, when I got hit, people think was like, man, that's great. You know, you probably got down. I was like, no, you know, because when I got hit, my teammates that we were going to pick up got caught in a crossfire. Mm. So they were calling back for help. Uh, they needed a close air support, and that was my job. I called in close air support, meaning I'm the one who directs the aircrafts where to drop the bombs or even a gun strafe. So you couldn't do that, obviously, and you were severely injured. What were your injuries? Uh, well, at the time, you know, I just I looked at myself. I was like, okay, I look, I have all my fingers, I got everything. You know, I, I did feel like my eyebrows were a little singed. Mm-hmm. Uh, but afterwards, after the whole thing, you know, when I woke up from my coma, you know, I received third degree burns on eighty percent of my body. You know, I lost my fingers. You know, I have nerve damage on my right foot. You know, they gave me 15% chance to live uh, and told me I was going to be on respiratory for the rest of my life and probably not walk again. And you did. I did. You know, I, I beat the odds. You know, two months after they told me that, you know, I walked out, out of the hospital walking and breathing on my own. You accidentally saw yourself in the mirror after the explosion. Um, you hadn't wanted to see yourself so soon. What did you think when you looked in the mirror? You know, uh, throughout my recovery, I never had wished I died until I did. You know, I call that my darkest hour. Because I saw myself and I broke down. I really did. I really broke down. I wanted to die. Because I thought, I was like, God, at the time I was 30 years old, if I if I think I'm a monster, it's like, what's my uh, three-year-old son going to think? You know, because no father wants his child to be afraid of him. And my son meant the whole world to me, you know. He was my entire motivation. Uh, so it was a big fear for me. It really was. And it took, you know, I called my guardian angel, Gary, uh, my therapist, because he was there with me with my wife. And he's the one that convinced me. He's like, DT, so many people look up to you. They see how hard you push, you know, every day. It's like, trust me, it's like all your son, all your son wants is his dad. And like I said, it took about almost 40 minutes to get me back into, you know, push that back in my head saying, okay, my son just wants me. It's like, don't be afraid, don't be afraid. And when you saw your son, uh, talk about that. It's a great story when you first saw him. Yeah, you know, uh, when I got out of the hospital and I walked into the house, you know, I remember seeing my family members, some of my teammates and... Then my wife calling out to my son saying, hey, you know, dad's here. And he comes running out and he stops and I get scared because, uh, you know, I'm I'm still covered up in bandages and all that. And I'm thinking, it's like, oh, my God, he's afraid. He's afraid. He's not going to want to hold me or anything. But he just tilts his head to the left and says, Papi. And I'm like, yeah, buddy. And it just comes up and gives me the most amazing hug I've ever had in my life. And, of course, my wife's like, don't hurt your dad. Don't hurt your dad. And I was just be quiet. I was like, let me hold my son because I, I hadn't seen him since August of 2005. That was the last time I saw and him. And this was when? This was around May 2006. You just competed in the Invictus Games, which is an international competition for wounded servicemen and women. And you won gold in shot put for the second time. Invictus means unconquered. And I understand you had never done shot put before. How did you learn? Yeah, you know, I never never did track and field in high school or in college. You know, I was a football, baseball, soccer player. But when you're going through recovery, they introduce you to adaptive sports because most of us are 
were athletes at some point. So sometimes you think, like, am I ever going to be able to do sports again? So they introduce you to adaptive sports to kind of get you back out in this society, get you going. And they introduced track and field to me, you know, throwing. And I thought I could never do it. But they told me, DT, you're injured because of your hand. You have the perfect injury for shot put. I'm like, what do you mean? Well, most people will try and cuff the, the shot put with their fingers, and you don't have that problem. So when you throw, you just launch it. Most people try and throw it like a baseball. So you have, you, get, you have an advantage that way. So, you know, it just worked out that I was able to do it. We're speaking with Master Sergeant Israel D.T. Del Toro, Jr. He was severely wounded in Afghanistan, and he reenlisted in the Air Force despite being 100% medically disabled. You were actually the first 100% medically disabled airman to reenlist in the Air Force. Why did you go back? Uh, you know, I get asked that question, you know, because people ask me, it's like, DT, you could make so much more money as a retired guy. But my thing is, it's very hard to find a job that you truly love. And I really love my job. And then the other reason is, you know, I want to retire on my terms. I want to retire on the terms on the guys that left that bomb to try it in my life. And I want to give them that satisfaction. You know, maybe I'm stubborn, but... You know, I want to retire when I'm ready to retire on my terms. When you first returned to service six years ago, you trained airmen to call in airstrikes, and that's what you did for many years, as you said earlier. Now you're part of the Air Force World Class Athlete Program. What does it mean to you? What did it mean to you to win the gold medal in the Invictus Games? Uh, well, well, for me, you know, winning that gold there at the Invictus Games was was almost too emotional, I guess, to explain because it, it just felt so great. It's such an amazing feeling to be there with all these other service members from different countries rooting me on and then my family and strangers rooting me on and be able to, to win gold there with them. Because usually when I do travel to compete, my family's not there with me, but to have them there with me and seeing me win and seeing me receive that gold was just an amazing feeling. How do you train? Well, it's it's very rigor rigorous. You know, based on what day of the week it is is when I what when I'm going to train. You know, if it's a a shooting day, I'll be shooting. Then in the afternoon, I'll throw and lift. When you know after that, so it, it's very time management. You got to have very good time management because if you don't, you're just be all over the place and you won't get the training that you need to get done. Here you are doing a sport. You were burned over 80% of your body. Do you have any residual pain? Uh, the only pain I really do have is in my left hand. Uh, and, but that's about it. The rest of my body, I really don't you know, don't feel pain. Maybe because I just don't have any more nerves that, and needs out there. But, but it's really just my left hand. You know, that's If it wasn't for my left hand, I really wouldn't have any pain. You played team sports like baseball while you were growing up, and I wonder why sports have always played such a key role in your life. Uh, you know, since a little kid, I've always played sports, and sports have always helped me throughout my journey in life, you know, from losing my parents, you know, team sports were there for me, you know, kept me focused, kept me on what I needed to do, and, you know, my teammates, they were there for me. And like I said, all throughout my life, I've always had sports incorporated in my life to help me through my tough times in life.
And certainly they've helped you since your injuries. They have. They really have. You know, sports are is a great recovery tool for any any person that is going through something like I did, you know, losing fingers, you know, being disabled when you weren't before. So to being able to do sports and know they can still be outside enjoying life is a very uh, comforting thing. Competing with your injuries, living with your injuries can't always be easy. Uh, is there anything that helps you to stay positive, move forward, keep competing? Uh, the main thing for me that keeps me going is really my son. It truly is my, my boy because I want to show him that, you know, no matter what happens, if you stay positive, stay motivated, you could overcome whatever obstacles that have come forward that are in front of you. And it's a promise also that I made to my dad uh, before he passed away that I always would take care of my family. And doing that, you know, showing my son that is my way of taking care of my family. DT, thanks so much for being with us. Uh, Thank you for having me, ma'am. CPR's Andrew DeConca speaking with wounded warrior and athlete Master Sergeant Israel Del Toro Jr. of Colorado Springs. He did not make the 2016 U.S. Paralympic team, but he won gold at the 2016 Invictus Games. We've posted photos and video of him at CPRnews.org. Coming up, we'll visit a well-known landmark in Victor, Colorado, that closed for good earlier this year. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. The small town of Victor, Colorado, was built on gold mining. There are some 2,500 miles of underground tunnels in the area, southwest of Colorado Springs. And you can visit mines with names like the Molly Kathleen and Chicken Hawk. One of the best known is the American Eagles Mine, which was closed for good earlier this year. This week, we're revisiting memorable stories from 2016, including this one, the last tour of the American Eagle Mines. Greetings, folks. Thank you for coming to the American Eagles tour. Brad Paulson stands in the middle of 50 people as they mingle in a street corner in downtown Victor. Large bins full of blaze orange construction vests and hard hats sit on the sidewalk. Paulson works for the Newmont Cripple Creek and Victor Mining Company. And today he's overseeing the last public tour of the historic American Eagles Mine and Scenic Overlook. It's located just outside Victor's town limits. The event was co-organized by Newmont CCNV and a local nonprofit focused on area history. So what we need to do is if you're going on this American Eagles tour, you need to get hard hats, safety glasses, and vests. And the reason for all this safety equipment? Well, the only way to get to the historic American Eagles mine site and overlook is through the Crescent Open Pit Gold Mine. It's the largest modern mine of its type in Colorado. And that's the problem. See, the Crescent Mine is expanding, and Newmont CCNV says tourists trying to get to the historic site would have to share the road with rock-hauling trucks. And Paulson says those trucks are massive, as tall as a two-story home. God forbid if there had been an accident... Um, it could have put this operation out of business. And the deal is, is that we employ 580 people whose average salary is about $79,000 a year with benefits. And if we'd have an accident, um, that would shut down this mining operation. And that would have a tremendous impact, not only on our miners who are part of this community, um, but indeed, um, it would have a big impact on this community in general. It's windy here at the American Eagles mine site, situated at 10,750 feet above sea level. 
People walk up a steep path to the historic buildings with their cameras at the ready because the scenery is classic Colorado, with big weathered timber mine structures and, in the distance, snow-capped mountains spreading across the horizon. Waiting at the top of the overlook is former CCNV miner and historian Gary Horton. The far snow-capped peak uh, down there is Blanca Peak, which is about 20 miles from uh, the uh, Colorado-New Mexico border. This long range of mountains is actually the Sangre de Cristos. Horton points out numerous mountain peaks and little towns, including Colorado City, 50 miles to the south, the Collegiate Peaks directly to the west, and on up to Leadville, over 70 miles to the north. So, we're uh, quite a ways up. You can see quite a bit. It's a beautiful view. I can't say that I ever get sick of the view. One of the dozens making the final trip to the Overlook is Liz Hunter of Colorado Springs. She remembers childhood trips to the American Eagles mine for picnic lunches with her parents, Cherry and Ed Hunter. Ed was a well-known mining engineer in the area with a building that bears his name in Cripple Creek. Hunter sits on a commemorative bench placed at the Overlook in her parents' honor while a friend takes a photo. Neato! That's beautiful, too. That's you on your daddy's bench and your mom's bench. An inscription on the bench reads, May all your labors be in vain. And vein is spelled V-E-I-N. Got it. Thank you, Hunter opens a bag full of flower petals and sprinkles them on the bench. As the strong wind catches them, they blow up into the air. It's sad that it's closing. It's such a wonderful place. It's so beautiful to come and just look at the beautiful Sangrid Crystals, Pikes Peak, have a picnic lunch, see the mines, be close to mom and dad. Uh, this is sad that we're losing the American Eagles. That's former miner Dick Crow. He's 68 years old now and has been giving tours here six days a week, Memorial to Labor Day, for the past six years. He stands beneath the 60-foot-tall American Eagles head frame. Because it is the highest point, and this view up here is spectacular. It's a wonderful old mine. Well, he's sad to see the overlook close forever. He's comforted knowing Newmont CCNV has a plan for the historic structures. But they're going to move the mine building so people can still see that. You heard that correctly. The company is going to move all of the historic structures of the American Eagles mine piece by piece and reassemble them somewhere else. He says it's been done a number of times before as the Crescent Surface Mine has expanded. The mine is stabilized and removed over 25 mine structures so the public can see them and at a tremendous cost, and that's not something the mine has to do. It's something they want to do, and it makes me really proud of the company. Newmont CCNV believes the structures are an important piece of the area's history, just not necessarily where they made history. But that doesn't quite satisfy Mona Campbell. It's just such a loss. Campbell works at the local history museum and can't help but tear up as people head to their cars and leave the overlook for the last time. You don't replicate these kind of views with historic mining and modern mining. It's it's a package. It's all here. And, you know, we never get to see this again. It's just going to be gone. So it's just sad. Dee DeYoung agrees. Her business is tourism. She's led mine tours around Victor and Cripple Creek for years and has visited the American Eagles Overlook since she was a little girl. How can you close down the mine? People come here from all over the world um, to see some of not just the new mining, because this is relatively new, but, you know, walk and see the head frames of the old miners. And, you know, this is as big as California gold and sometimes bigger. Brad Paulson of Newmont CCNV understands DeYoung's concern, but says the historic structures remaining on the Overlook just isn't feasible any longer. You can go to the International, 
um, which was preserved and relocated by CCNV and is open to the public on trails. You can drive up to the Hoosier, um, where you can get magnificent views of Pikes Peak and also that historic mine site. Bottom line, Paulson says the American Eagle's mine will be recreated somewhere new. But when? What we need to do is establish where they are going to go first, okay, and then move them to that location in a safe manner, not only for the people doing the operation, but for the community when we move them. And we have experience doing that, and we're just not sure what that time frame is at this point. But Three the, years? But the five years? Ten years? Um, you know, I'm, I'm, I, I, would, I would have to guess that it would be certainly within ten years. Well, they can't recreate the view. Newmont CCNV is working with local officials to find a permanent new home for the American Eagle's structures. One possible site, they say, could be outside the mining district altogether. And I took a few photos of my trip, including the expansive view. You can check them out at cprnews.org. 2016 was a rough year for music lovers with the death of some real legends. Our colleagues at CPR's Open Air paid tribute December 30th with a program called Dearly Departed. They've enlisted Colorado artists to perform the music of those who passed away this year. For a preview, here is Covenhoven performing The Stranger Song by Leonard Cohen. It's true that all the men you knew were dealers who said that they were through with dealing every time you gave them shelter I know that kind of man it's hard to hold the hand of anyone who is reaching for the sky just to surrender who is reaching for the sky just to surrender and then sweeping up the jokers that he left behind you find he did not leave you very much Not even laughter Like any dealer He was watching for the car That is so high and wild You'll never need to deal another He was just some Joseph Looking for a manger Yeah, he was just some Joseph Looking for a manger And then leaning on your windowsill He'll say one day you caused his will To weaken with your love and warmth and shelter And then taking from his wallet An old schedule of trains to say I told you when I came I was a stranger But now another stranger seems to want you to ignore his dreams as though they were the burden of some other Oh, you've seen that man before His golden arm dispatching cards But now it's rusted from the elbow to the finger And he wants to trade the game he plays for shelter Yes, he wants to trade the game he knows for shelter Oh, you hate to see another tired man Lay down his hand like he was giving up The only game of poker And while he talks his dreams to sleep in yours There's a highway that is curling up like smoke 
above his shoulder Then it's curling up like smoke above his shoulder Calvin Hoven remembering Leonard Cohen. For more musical tributes, tune to CPR's open air tomorrow at 4 p.m. for Dearly Departed, Colorado Remembers 2016. You can't close your shelter. That's our show for today. Thanks to Brady McNellis, our audio engineer, director Michelle P. Fulcher, and producers Anthony Cotton and Stephanie Wolf. I'm Nathan Heffel. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. It's you, my love, you who are the stranger.